It is from the book of Titus. That's where we are studying Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I would like to read to us this morning. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject fascist men after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Let's pray. Our Father in God, thank you so much for the communion service, the reminder of what Christ has done. Thank you for the reminder of who we are. As the psalmist said, what is man that thou art even mindful of him? And yet, Father, your love was expressed in not only coming, but your son paying the penalty and price for our sin. We're thankful for that. And Father, you've immersed us into the body of Christ and as believers given us gifts. And Father, as we function together, we've had the opportunity to fellowship, to exercise those gifts today. And now we sit at your feet and open the word of God. Privileged to have in our own language the word so that we can understand it and know you and know your expectations of us. Help us, Father, not to be even committed to our own thinking, but, Father, to be aware in how entrapped we can become as human beings. But let us sit at your feet and learn and let your word of God change us so that we might be more the people that you'd have us to be. We open the word of God now and trust you for the study, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've entitled this morning's message, Points of Emphasis, Part 3. This is the last part to it. Uh, let me help you, even in preparation as a congregation. I shared this in our meeting the other night. But as you can see, we're winding down the book of Titus. By God's grace, we will have today's message and one more message to finish the book of Titus. It's been a joy in my heart to study it together with you. But as you can prepare and read and, and pray, where are we going next? We're going to go into 1 Peter next, and I hope you'll be encouraged with that. It's a tremendous book that will be dealing with the fantastic inheritance that we have. Tremendous inheritance as believers in Christ. It'll also be a real encouragement to you as you get in and see the privilege of sufferings and deals with the practicality of the trials of the difficulties, of the challenges that we face as believers with the things of this world and the various trials that God allows in our life. So you might start reading that and just enjoy the epistle as we prepare to study that together. But as we wind down Titus, we are in the final exhortation, as you know, to this epistle. Titus, who has been left in the island of Crete, was left there by the Apostle Paul, you'll recall, to set in order certain things. He was to set in order, number one, qualified, biblically qualified leadership there, 
because there, were, there was just a scattering of doctrines and there was a scattering of confusion. And he was to get back to setting in order qualified leadership to direct and lead in those areas. And then he was also to establish sound Bible doctrine. That's what the epistles have been about. And thirdly, we have seen as we've studied this epistle together, Titus was to be involved in instructing people in the practicality of living out their doctrine, of living it and every day to be involved in living for the glory of God. And that was Titus's assignments. And as we have come through the three chapters and are winding it down, we have come to this section that, as I said in part one, this is really, and we need to get this, a summary of the book. Everything is summarized in these few verses that I have just read this morning of all that he's been instructing them throughout the book. It is what he is stressing. It is what he wants to leave as a final impression on their mind. It is what he is emphasizing, and that's why I've called it points of emphasis as he winds down the book. And he's dealing with it in three areas. We've taken a message on each one of them. This is the third. The first one, if you look at the passage, is what to promote. What are we to be involved in as believers? I think it's a good thing to look at. What are we to be involved in in promoting? That was verse 8, and we dedicated an entire message to it. Bottom line, good works. Now that is frightening, as we saw. It is frightening to believers. Why? We are not saved by good works. No one by their own efforts, no one by their own ability, nobody by their own efforts can get into a right relationship with God, ever be forgiven for sins, and go into heaven and have eternal life. Impossible. Yet we know that, and we emphasize that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Christ alone. Amen. However... Because of that, we sometimes shy away from the responsibility, as Ephesians has shown us, we are created unto good works. And we need to have an emphasis in the church of Jesus Christ today to believers to get involved in good works. Not for salvation, but as an outworking of our salvation. We are to be involved in that. And the one thing that he gives on the positive side in closing the book to Titus, to instruct them on the island of Crete, is tell the people to be involved in good works because that is profitable. When people see it's real in your life, they will be drawn to Christ, and then you'll have the opportunity to share the gospel. That's the essence of it. The second area we got into in our second message was what they are to avoid, and the outline on your bulletin gives you the reminder of these. Now, as I said, it was surprising to me in my study and it ought to be, I think, surprising to you. I would have expected Paul, when he closes this book, to emphasize when he's going to tell you what to avoid, to deal with such things as idolatry, to deal with such things as uh, immorality, to deal with such things as thievery, to deal with such, th such things as lust and greed. He doesn't. His emphasis to Titus is, Tell them to be involved in good works. And you'll notice again, verse 8, it says he's talking to those who have believed in God. He's talking to believers. And then he says, I want you to avoid these things. Shun away from it. What am I to turn away from? And he categorizes them or classifies them in four areas. He says foolish controversies, or we've said futile arguments, genealogies, though that was important to the Jew as we examine that. 
He's dealing with the concept of name dropping, superiority of position that we might think we have. Arguments and strife, that is self-centered arguments, hobby horses that we might want to go on. And then fourth, quarrels about the law. And that is, and that was well known to the Jews by the Pharisees and Sadducees. They took the law of God, which was pure, and they had stretched it and examined it and brought it into areas that the law was never intending it. And we can do that today with the word of God. That was why when Jesus Christ came on the scene, he said, have you not read? Or he says, you have been told that this is what the law says. Let me tell you what it really says. And he got right into where it was because they had confused people with all the stuff that they had put into it. And what did it boil down to? In our study, as we spent time on that, what he emphasized to them to avoid was non-profitable, divisive word battles. That's how we summarized it. Don't get involved in stuff that just doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. Divisiveness, non-profitable word battles. So to summarize those first two, we mentioned the fact that doctrine is very important. There are non-negotiables. I just told you that, and we studied that together. The idea that it's salvation through Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone, and we have scripture alone, and all of those, uh, if you will, the soul is of scripture. We are to concentrate on those. There is an importance of sound doctrine, and Titus was to teach that, as we saw. On the practical end, though, they were to be very careful, and that's what he's summarizing, and I was trying to be very practical with you. And that is these debates and these things where we get involved in such things, and I'll only name a few that we talked about, the King James Only movement, legalism versus license, theological positions on the sovereignty of God, the responsibility of man. It isn't that those things are not important, but these debates go on and they destroy churches. Entertainment's another one. There is a place for that, and we said that. There's a place in a classroom. There's a place to talk with your brother and sister on that. And I was so practical that I want to give you one point of clarification before we move on. What is that? I mentioned, for example, fellowship time. It is the time between our Christian growth classes and the time you come into here. When you're in the auditorium and you're involved with, with refreshments and so on, I don't want to be misunderstood. Because I said that is not the time to be debating these things, and it's not. Why did I say that? Because of this. Our priority as a local church, when we come together, ought not to be for those debates. There's a place for that. In our fellowship time, we should be so conscious of two different things. One is that we should be very conscious of unbelievers, people that don't know Christ, that have been brought in as visitors. That should be a priority, not debates. You want to debate with somebody who's a believer, go do that someplace else. That room should be that we're so sensitive to people that came in because we're reaching out to them with the gospel. Or secondly, to one another. Why? This is our time to come together collectively to have fellowship with one another. And let's be honest, we are all hurting. We are all sinners. We have difficulties. We have challenges throughout the week. And we ought to be sensitive when we get together in fellowship to notice people who might be down, who might need encouragement. And you know what? One day it's going to be you if it's not today, and same with me. And so our priority when we come together should be to study the word of God, should be to build one another up, and to be sensitive to those things. 
I'm not saying you don't have those debates. I am not going to go way back into that, but that's what I meant. Our priority is really to be one another, and our priority is to be the unsaved. Those other things have a place, and that was not the time for it. Okay, hopefully that clarifies. That brings us to the third point. What is that? This is the toughie, in my opinion. But the third point that he says, as a point of emphasis, is found in verses 10 and 11. What is it? Let's get right into it this morning. What to reject. So in his three points of emphasis, he says, here's what I want you to promote. Here's what I want you to avoid, the, 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 basically the debates and the discouragements and whatever. And here's what I'm telling you, listen, I want you to absolutely reject. And that's what he says in verses 10 and 11. What is it? Let's look at it. Let me read those two verses again. Reject a fascist man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. It's pretty straightforward. What's the description? Verse 10, he calls it a fascist man. What is that? What does he mean by that so that we don't misunderstand what is being taught by the Apostle Paul to Titus? Let me give you a couple of different translations. That doesn't mean I'm promoting these translations, but it's going to help you with the terminology as I even get into what the Greek means here. In the English Standard Version, it translates this, a person who stirs up divisions. In the King James Version, it says, a, a heretic. In the New King James, it translates it, <clears throat> a divisive man. The NIV translates it the same way, a divisive man. Have you got the picture? That's really the idea behind the Greek. It is a divisive man. It is someone who is causing divisions. It is a person, and I go on with the amplification as I looked at the lexicons and so forth. Here's what it is. It is a person who stirs up divisions. It is a person who has his own agenda. It is a person who is trying to influence the church or believers to their position. Here is, I believe, the key. It is a person whose character is to fight and to oppose. When you see them, that's what they're doing. All their priority and emphasis is, who can I oppose and who can I fight? That's the character. It incites and introduces controversy into the body of Christ. That's the type of person it's talking about. The one that is introducing controversy into the body of Christ. The one that is devoted. Their life, their character is that of criticism and argument. That's their character. When you think of them, that's the type of person you see. Argument and criticism all the time. They are looking for a following. They refuse, listen to this, they refuse to consider any view that may be contrary to their own thinking. In other words, they can never be wrong. Many times done in the name of Christ. If we don't understand who the person is, then we're not going to understand what he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about. It's that person whose character is to fight, to cause divisions, to basically oppose everything that's coming along. And we've already learned through the book of Titus that we ought to stand strong on doctrine. We ought to do that. But we're not to be involved in divisiveness. This is not 
When you look at the Greek term, when you look at its use in scripture, this is not talking about the person who has an honest difference. If you think everybody's going to agree, if I think everybody's going to agree with me, I better go home now. And I'm talking about you. Seriously. Everybody's at different levels of growth, even as a Christian. There are young believers, there are those who know more than I know, who have studied positions on things and I'm still struggling with. That is the reality of life. And we're not talking about that honest struggle. We're talking about a divisive person. We're not talking about somebody who simply wants to sit down. Can we talk about this theological issue? Of course. That's a good thing to do. But it's not right now. And it's not in fellowship time. And it's not when you're coming together for another purpose. I, again, want to, I personally believe, you know me, and I know there's visitors here today or whatever. You'll get to know me pretty quick. I'm going <clears throat> to put it right on the line as far as the practicality of what I'm talking about because I think we need to understand. The timing of the rapture. If anyone has any question about what this church believes, pick up and look at the doctrine or what I believe. I believe that the, that's the next event on the calendar. I, be in, I believe in a pre-tribulational uh, rapture, premillennial rapture. That's my position. That's the position of this church. But the timing of the rapture has been made such a divisive issue by the church. Sovereignty of God versus man's responsibility. Let me tell you something. My library is filled with books. There are many godly men that have been dealing with that issue all their lives and are now dead. And we're still dealing with it. Do you think you have the handle on it? Now, what am I saying? Should you not know your position? Of course you should. But these ought not to be causing the divisions. Do I dare mention this? Yes. Dispensationalism versus Reformed theology. Do we have to be careful about our theology? Of course we do. But we need to be careful. Four-point versus five-point Calvinism. How practical can I get? There are churches that are divided and splitting the believers, and that's all they're talking about when the lost world is going to hell and they're not getting them with the gospel. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't know where we stand. You should know me by now. Worship style, style of music. That is why I took the time with this congregation to spend almost a year teaching you on the subject of music because there's so much confusion on music and so much confusion about what's acceptable, not acceptable, and churches are divided over it. And as you know, we're not going down the tubes on this, but the bottom line is you need to know what Scripture says. And these ought not to be the divisive issues. That is not to be the case. Eh? And when people are making those divisive issues, there's a problem. It's important, but that is not the priority. What is the priority of the work? Let me remind us. Turn with me very rapidly in your Bible. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. What is the priority of the body of Christ? Look. Let me give it to you quick. So we can go through the, the passage. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, conclusion, I, the prisoner of the law, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We all know that passage. First three chapters, wonderful. Here's who you are. Chapter 4, verse 1. Walk the way you should. And everybody stops there. Hold on. Watch. Verse 2. With all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent. You want to be diligent in something? Here it is to preserve, we don't make it, we preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is the priority. The 
priority is the body of Christ being seen by the unsaved world as being one that loves one another and one that stands for truth and one that is focused on one another so they're attracted to it and that we are. Go to chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. Chapter 5. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of God. Yeah, Pastor Dan, you better be subject to me. That's right. You're right. And you had be, better be subject to me. Why? Because I'm a mean guy. No, that isn't the idea. You get the point, though. We ought to be subject to one another. That's what it is. Can I sit back and say, you know what? You might be right in this. And, and there's things to fight about. But are these the things to fight about? Really? Seriously? We need to examine that and watch out and be careful. Go to Ephesians. Uh, well, time's really flipping. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I have a bunch of other verses. We, I won't even turn to John. We've seen that so many times. How, is the, how are we to be known? By our love one for another, right? That's how the Lord said the disciples be known. Here it is, and it's on the sides. If you don't have a Bible with you, just look on the sides of the church here. Chapter 2 of Philippians, just the first four verses. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and these things, by the way, should be there, make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, there's our goals, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but for the interest of others. And then he goes on to say, you want to have an attitude? Have the attitude that Christ had. He made himself a servant. Bottom line. That is to be our priority as a body. Those other things are important, but we need to stick to, and I will die. If you're going to want to fight with me about the fact that Christ is the only way, I will die over that. I will. I will argue with you till you're blue in the face because the scriptures are very clear. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. You want to talk to me about that it's grace alone? I will die over that one. You want to talk to me about the King James Version only? Have fun. I'm going to use the New American Standard. I'm not going to die over that. That sounds silly. But I want you to see the seriousness of it. I'm going to stand strong on what I just told you about the timing of the rapture. But if you are struggling with the, the timing of the rapture or not sure how it all fits in, I'm not going to die over that. I will talk to you about it because there's many that believe Christ is coming back. And, and, it is, and it's not that it's not important, but that's not the priority. Why do you think people are still struggling with the, the, the concept of the timing? Because it's always been a struggle. Just be honest. Recognize it. So what do you do when you see a person that's divisive? We need to get back to our text in Titus. What do we do? You see someone that's divisive. That's their character. They always want to fight. They always want to argue. They always want to debate. The first thing they see somebody at church, they want to pull them aside and talk and debate and everything else. They're not concerned about the body uh, that's hurting. They're not concerned about those that are around and they're unsaved. That's all they want to do is fight. What do you do? Do you ignore them? Absolutely not. You can't afford to. Do you call Pastor Dan? That's what some people do. I had someone very recently, they're not in the auditorium right now, but very recently they spoke to me, and in talking to me, they said, Pastor Dan, da 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 I said, really? I said, good, you saw that, you go deal with it. 
They said, what do you mean? I said, it's not my responsibility. You saw it. Scripture is a brother in Christ. You go to them. They didn't like it. Well, I thought you would. No, why? You want to do the right thing? You go take care of it. See? That's the way. Don't call Pastor Dan. Call somebody else. Gossip about it. That was the problem, and I won't turn here, but I'll remind you. That was the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was immorality there. Terrible immorality. And everybody was ignoring it. Or they thought it was wonderful. Or they thought it was good. No, go deal with it. You never ignore it. So what action do we take? Let's take a look at it here in verse 10. It says, now I'm going to reverse it a little bit because reject is the first word, but you notice that it says in the middle of the passage, after something, after the first and second warning. In verse 10, the first thing you're to do is to admonish. What does that mean? You are to warn them. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to give a couple of references and you turn to them on your own. This word admonish is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, when it says this. Everything that happened in the Old Testament happened for our admonition. What? To warn us. What we have in the Old Testament about all those trials that Israel had and everything they went through was for a purpose, to warn us of the sovereignty of God, of the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and how we ought to walk so that we don't stray. It is also used, interestingly enough, in Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 4, when it says, listen to this one, you'll remember it, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, which, what does it then say? An admonition. That's this word. We are supposed to bring our children up, warning them. If you don't warn your children, you're not a good parent. We ought to be, I'm, I am a parent. By the way, I just found out I'm going to be a grandparent again. Praise the Lord. Okay, but the point is, we ought to be involved in that. We ought to take the time. Why? Because that's what God says. If you see that, you don't call somebody else, deal with it. Deal with it. Give them a warning. Hey, maybe you don't even realize that that's possible. Now you say, well, if it's a character, they must realize what they're doing. It's possible that they don't think anyone else cares. It's possible that they're not recognizing it because they're caught up in it. But it reaches a point that you should even have the courage to turn around, and that's what it takes to say to that person, hey, do you realize what you're doing? You realize you're causing division here? You're not helping the cause of Christ at all? You're to go to them. Why do we want to do that? Let me give you some reasons quickly. Number one, to protect the name of God. To protect his name. Two, to protect the local assembly so it doesn't become divisive. That was the First Corinthians church. And also to protect the person. We don't think of that. But the person may be caught up in, in all of that division, in all of that controversy, and not even realize what they're doing, and we want to help them. That's really what it is. We want to help them from ruin. Then it says, after you've done it, what happens? They don't respond. Do it again. Doesn't it? After the first, that's step number one. Number two is, warn them again. Admonish them again. Why? Because God's patient. This is showing grace. You don't ignore it, and you don't just beat someone over the head so that that's it. You're no good. We'll destroy you or whatever. That's not the idea at all. I'll have nothing to do with you. Not at that stage. If you're doing that right away, there's a problem with you. You have a responsibility, and I have a responsibility to go to that person and try to help them out. 
Well, they didn't listen to me. Then you go a second time, and you try to help them out. Does it sound like Matthew? It should. I'll give you the reference. You can turn there on your own. Matthew 18. If somebody's offended you, you say, well, I didn't get offended. They're just disruptive. Then you should be offended. Don't ignore it. Honestly, it takes courage. We don't want to do that. We want the elders or we want the pastor to confront people when in reality we're the ones that are involved in it every day and we should be carrying out the exercise of going to them first. Then they don't listen. Go to them again. And Matthew says you bring someone else the second time to try to help the situation. Why? Because you're trying to restore. You're not trying to destroy the person. We have no problem, in my opinion, as the Church of Jesus Christ today, carrying this out when it comes to immorality. If somebody was to be involved in immorality, believers get up in arms, and they should, and ready to throw the people out and deal with it and make sure we deal with it hard and everything else, and we should. But I don't see too many believers that are carrying this out where they see somebody that's divisive and they've got the courage to say, you need to stop that. Why? You don't realize what you're doing to the body. And they don't listen and they go back and say, look, I talked to you. You need to stop that. That's not our priority. Let's go have a cup of coffee. Let's go and talk about the, but you, you don't know what you're doing to the body. You can't ignore it. Why? Look at 2 Timothy 2. Take a look there quickly. If you, and listen, this is talking about a divisive person. Here's where it goes. 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter. Remember that? That's the same language that he's talking about in Titus that I gave in the second message. That's why I said it's worldly word battles. That's where it comes from. It's just chatter about things that really aren't the priority. It says, for it will lead to further ungodliness. That's where it's going to go. Divisiveness is that way. And their talk, watch this. Here's the, here's the important reason why you've got to deal with it. Their talk will spread like gangrene. It spreads. So I think of it this way. It's not the Greek word there, but you'll understand. It's like cancer. It's spreading. Why? Because you're letting it spread. And that's the objective of a divisive person is to get people to listen to them and get over into their camp. You let that happen and more and more people will get involved and it will become divisive like a cancer and a lead away. And here's the real tragedy, in my opinion. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Those are the leaders. That's not the problem. The problem is verse 18. Men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has, taken, has already taken place and here it is, they have upset the faith of some. And that's what a divisive person does. People are trying to walk with the Lord. They may be young in the Lord, and now you've totally confused them because you have an agenda. You have something you want to accomplish. And that's why we need to protect the body. And what happens? Go back to Titus chapter 3. Not easy, but it's real, folks, and it's practical. If they don't listen to the first and second warning, then you've got to do what it says, and you've got to have the courage to do it. What is it? Reject them. 
Well, what does that word mean? It means have nothing to do with them. Can it reach that point with the brethren in Christ? Absolutely. And it should. But you know what? A lot of times it doesn't. A lot of times where this happens is pastors to pastors, where they won't agree with this and whatever, so they want nothing to do with the pastors. I'm just talking to you from practical experience. But it doesn't happen in a local church. When people are divisive in the local church, they let it go on and they end up talking about the person, but they don't deal with it. And it eats away, and it eats away, and it eats away. This term means to have nothing to do. In fact, it's used that way. Timothy is close by, so let's turn to it. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. No offense, old women. <laughs> On the other hand, sorry, I just need to say that. <laughs> On the other hand, discipline yourselves. Watch, discipline yourselves. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. That's what we're to be promoting. That's the good works in. Be involved in that. Stay away from, have nothing to do with a situation where it, it's really just fables. It can't be supported. It can be stretched. That's the idea of taking the word of God and stretching it into something it never meant. And you can't support it, by the way. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at it. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 23. But refuse, watch this, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Let me just stop there for a minute because of some of the things I said this morning. You can drive up and down 93 right now, and you, I guarantee you're going to find some polls that will tell you the rapture should, occurred, should have occurred 20 years ago. And then you'll find some others that will say it should have occurred 10 years ago. It's foolish. We don't know when he's coming back. The Lord said that. Okay, that doesn't mean we shouldn't know he's coming back. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study the word of God or take the position that I take or the church takes. Of course we should. But we have to be honest. It's not very clear exactly in what's going to happen. You see? It says refuse that knowing, and here it is, that it produces what? Quarrels. Isn't that what it says? It does. It does. Produces, and literally, by the way, just so you know it, that word means fights. That present, all that does is promote fighting among the believers. That's not why we're here. And by the way, if you happen to be visiting the church, I can tell you, and I think most people would support me in this, I stand very strong on doctrine. Now, some of you may not think so anymore, but I do. And I will fight for things. But we need to get things into focus. We ought not to be fighting like that. It's interesting because 1 Corinthians, and I'll give you the reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, that's where it says, I'm after Paul, I'm after Paulus. I have the, and that's what you hear among men. Have you read the latest of, uh, of Spurgeon? Have you read the latest of Calvin or, or, or this person or, or that person? And they get all kinds of names that they go down the list with. And I probably shouldn't have named just two and left it open like that. I didn't mean to pick on them. But the reality is they start naming the, and all it does is cause divisions. I'd rather know what the word of God says and stick to this, period. 
And interestingly enough, I probably should read this to you. With that church, do you know what the last words that Paul said in 2 Corinthians? Listen to this. In chapter 13, the, in verse 13, he, um, in verse 11, sorry, he says this. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. Who in the world is he writing to? The Corinthian church that was split over everything. Live in peace. So what are we to do? Reject. I'll put it to you this way because time's gone away. We must stand for what we must stand for. But have no delight, is the way I'll put it to you. Don't have a delight in endless debates among the brethren. In areas that really people have been studying for years and so have we. The enemy is not the unsaved. Number one, you know, we don't want to partake in their sin, but they're the ones, you wouldn't be saved unless somebody reached out to you. Reach out with the gospel. Secondly, listen carefully, the enemy is not our brethren. They're not. They're part of the body of Christ. Who is the enemy? You really want to know? Number one, the enemy is our own flesh. Number one. My biggest enemy is me. Your biggest enemy is you. Because our flesh wants to take over. Enemy number two is the world. Now, if you've been here at any length of time, you know what I mean by that. I'm talking about the world philosophy. We're talking about the world's thinking. Not talking about living in your job or enjoying life. Not at all. God wants us to do that. And the third enemy, folks, is the devil. That's the scripture. It's me, the world, and the devil. It's not my fellow believer. Are there times to separate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our priority should be the gospel of Christ, the unity of the body, the preaching of the word, the maturing of the saints, obeying the word of God personally, growing in Christ, and caring for the body. That's it. That's our priorities. And they had lost focus of it, and sometimes do we. And why, I'll close with this, why do you have to reject that person? You mean it can come to the point that somebody I really like, and I have to come to the point saying, I want nothing to do with you, I won't even go eat with you? And Absolutely. That's what he says. If they're divisive and you try to talk to them, they won't listen. There comes a point in time, one of the, one person I came across that I had the highest respect for and they have moved geographically out of the area. I will never forget it. Somebody was talking to them, and their, their response to them was, do I really need to listen to this? Because it, it's not me. And if you've got a problem, you better go face that problem, because all we're going to end up doing is dividing the body. And that's true. It took a lot of courage to say that. But in the last verse, verse 11, it's kind of frightening. The reason you have to do that is because someone who is a divisive person Look at this. He is perverted. I like that word. Literally, the Greek word means he's been twisted. He's been turned inside out. His thinking is absolutely twisted. His emphasis is wrong. If that, you don't catch that, he is sinning. Very rarely does a divisive person see themselves or a 
or a person that's always complaining see themselves as a sinner. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're sinning. You say that, Pastor Dan? That's what it says. A divisive person is perverted and he is sinning. And many times they will say, but I'm defending the name of Christ. Be careful. But the last thing is rather interesting to me personally. Why? Notice what it says? Self-condemned. It doesn't even say condemned by God. Their own actions condemn themselves. Their character is divisiveness. They are sinning. They've condemned themselves before God. And just like Romans 1, where the unsaved have creation and can never stand before God with an excuse, believers who are divisive will stand before God and not be able to say to God, but I, but I, but I, but I. He's going to say, you knew the word of God, and your job was unity. You divided the flock because you were divisive. Rather frightening. We all do it from time to time. So let's close with the positive. The emphasis was this. Promote good works. You want to know what to be involved in as a believer? Not for salvation, not for just trying to win some spiritual favor because God's worked in our hearts. Go out and express it and let good works flow out of your life. That's what you have been designed by God, according to Ephesians. You've been created under good works. Avoid that unprofitable stuff. It's not going to be helpful. And when you see a divisive person, have the courage to do what God's called you to do. Talk to them, talk to them again, and then do the most loving thing that you can do. I'm done with you. I want nothing to do. All you do is divide. Because the idea is to win them back. And it will work. Let's pray. Father in God, it's a very sobering text. I know a very challenging text to my own heart. But I'll start with myself and ask, God, you just forgive me for the times that I've caused more division in the body of Christ than unity. And I pray for every believer here who maybe has done the same thing. Father, we've seen this morning we've just been saved by the grace of God and not because we're noble and not because we're mighty, but simply because of your grace. You place us in the body of Christ and your desire is that now as believers we be promoting good works and we be sensitive to preaching the gospel, reaching out to the lost and loving the brethren. Father, help us to do that. I pray as a local body you'd help us. I thank you for everyone in this auditorium. Lord, I thank you you've gifted us differently. And many times we misunderstand one another. Forgive us for that. And help us to function in a way that unites this body to be a shining testimony in this area of Methuen in the Merrimack Valley so that the lost would be attracted to our love one for another. And so, Father, our care for one another would be so seen that we would know that we really do love one another as Christ has loved us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>